Neighbors bring food with death, flowers with sickness, and little things in between. Harper Lee. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I want to thank everyone who's been diligently listening uh, the last couple of weeks. And for any newcomers, welcome. I hope you enjoy the show. And if um, you would like, we have plenty of a backlog of episodes you can listen to uh, while we wait for the next one. But uh, enough of the standard meet and greet. Um, this week we're going to be finishing up talking about Gobekli Tepe and then comparing it to some of the uh, nearby sites that are um, part of kind of this same tol- culture or regional group, uh, which is referred to by some as the Tas Tepler or Stone Hills or T-Pillar culture, what have you. Uh, first, though, I did need to talk about one thing um, that was something I had meant to mention in last week's episode. And I did talk about it last week, but it was in the special episode I mentioned uh, and recorded uh, before the main episode. Um, I didn't go into as much detail as I'm going to, but it kind of threw me off. Uh, I had crossed off some note stuff, uh, and that kind of carried over to the main episode. Um, and speaking of that episode... Um, possibly two weeks from now, maybe a little bit more. Um, we'll see. I'm still kind of trying to map out some stuff, and um, I may have a delay on the episode two weeks from now. I'm still trying to figure things out. But regardless, um, we'll continue. Uh, just wanted to give everyone a little bit of forewarning. Uh, so there were a large number of stone bowls and vats and other kinds of containers that you could think of um, discovered at Gobekli Tepe. And interestingly enough, they were found while they were putting up uh, tenting to kind of guard the site from wind and rain, as well as provide cover from the sun for people visiting the site uh, because they were kind of trying to make it a little bit more tourist-friendly to try to draw interest and funding. Um, Initially, they thought that this might have been like a trash bin or a midden um, after a closer look at the artifacts and analysis of the location and items found in the area, um, they discovered that the dumping ground theory was probably not correct. In fact, it was rather quickly thrown out. It was a concentration of intact stone vessels and limestone troughs kind of made into uh, the the ground almost, um, the number of which is quite a bit more than you would find at other sites occupied at a similar time frame. Um, and they examined the residues found on the containers and found traces of a few likely substances. Um, this included a kind of um, what was probably similar to porridge or maybe grits if you're in the southeast. And there was also evidence of uh, fermentation of what was probably barley or emmer, meaning, you know, a type of beer or proto or pseudo beer, uh, some type of fermented beverage, um, or uh, possibly mixed in with some fruits to help kind of uh, 
add some sugar to the mix because I do think they found like what could have been wild grapes or berry like stems that may have been in that as well. Now, humans have probably been, you know, experimenting with fermented beverages since since the beginning, probably well before we were even Homo sapiens. Um, you know, waiting for fruits to get overripened and the, you know all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, wild fermented fruits and things like that attract all types of wild animals, and even you know, our I'm sure you know other Homo species took part. Uh, Erectus or Gaster, Neanderthals, what have you. But this is the first site where I'm aware of evidence of deliberate production has been found. Uh, And it appears from the few plant remains found that the concoctions were, again, made from um, wild sources or very early strains of domesticated crops or a mix between the two with a few wild fruits thrown in. So this does give credence to some part of Klaus Schmitz's theory of Gobekli Tepe's importance. Um, There does appear to have been kind of a a communal sourcing of food for more than just a standard day-to-day meal. Uh, Though again, this is evidence of more than just groups of hunter-gatherers just meeting up seasonally at a hunting ground. Uh, It takes planning, uh, knowledge of essentially basic chemistry, though they wouldn't have recognized it as that, and time to prepare and ferment your beer. Uh, This is the kind of setup you would make if you're living at a place for longer stretches of time, if not permanently. So again, we see more problems emerge with the initial interpretation of the site, despite that there may be parts of it that were true, such as it maybe being a communal celebration location. Um, but now, though, I want to get into the sister sites of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, again, sometimes referred to as the Tas Tepler culture, um, which culture may not be the best or most appropriate term, um, but I don't think there's any doubt that there is a level of communication and connection uh, that goes far beyond simple proximity and basic trade. Um, We can debate what a culture actually is, and in fact we will do that when I move um, to some of the episodes about um, how cities develop. Um, But uh, for now though, I just want to talk about kind of some of the sites, uh, how they're similar to Gobekli Tepe, and how they're each kind of different. Uh, And this is a total of, uh, I think right now, there are 12 12 to 13 main sites, uh, and possibly some that are kind of um, maybe proto-sites or offshoots that happen at the end of the Tepler culture as these larger, more established settlements kind of break apart and uh, disappear from the archaeological record. Um, The sites we're going to focus on, or at least I'm going to talk about more in depth in this episode, and again, that's not all of them, but we have um, uh, Gurkutepe, Chakamak Tepe, 
uh, Sefer Tepe, Karahan Tepe, uh, and Nawali Kori as well. Uh, as, and there are a few others that may be um, Tos Tepler sites that uh, maybe not necessarily counted 100%, but definitely have some influences. And one of those is uh, Kayono Tepeshi. Uh, I may get into that. May not. We'll see how much time we have. But there are other sites that are in this group. Uh, Hamzan Tepe, uh, Tasli Tepe, Inali Tepe, uh, Basaran Hoyuk, and um, a few others. Um, but again, Tepe means hill, so most of these are named kind of based on some type of description of the hill that they are buried under. Um, and I think... I'm trying to think which the best one to start with is. Um, I think we will start with um, uh, with uh, uh, Chakma Tepe, which uh, means lighter hill. Um, and this is a fairly new site. Um, and when I say new, I mean in terms of excavated. Um, I don't think they started excavating this until, let's say it was 2020, 2021, somewhere in that time frame. Um, and this site is not large. Uh, it's only, I think, about 150 meters, like in terms of area that it kind of covers. Uh, and it is to the uh, southwest west of San La Urfa. So San La Urfa or Edessa or whatever you refer to it as uh, is kind of in between uh, Chakmak Tepe and uh, Gobekli Tepe. Um, and Chakmak means, uh, from my understanding of, and believe me, my Turkish is not strong at all, but uh, from what I got from translating, it means lighter. Um I don't know if that means that if that's a reference to color or if it is an actual reference to an actual lighter. Maybe the hill looked like you know, the tip of like a little butane lighter or something along those lines. I don't know. But uh, what you find at uh, Chakmak Tepe that is uh, similar to uh, Gobekli Tepe is that there is... Um, evidence of progression of kind of how houses evolved you start with just wooden posts uh kind of in a circular tent design covered by animal hide then you get um wood um supports for um circular stone dwellings and then there's a slow progression to um um uh, excuse me, square or rectangular designs. Um, but again, this is not a huge location. Um, and I, I'm not sure the exact dates. Um, they are still kind of studying and timing them. But this is before our timeline uh, of 8,000 to 6,000. But I figured I'd bring it up because this is evidence that... Um, that Gobekli Tepe did not just come from nowhere. This is a this is a precursor site. Some have, I think, have referred to it as the missing link. Um, kind of like just show the progression, uh, and it is a little bit further than away from some of the other uh, 
Tos Templar sites. Uh, it's not within the Stone Hills proper. I guess it's on its outskirts. But they do have similarities as well. The art uh, in terms of the animal design is very similar, although there's nowhere near the size. Um, the pillars are not there. Uh, there are more like, I guess you might consider it handheld art, but they do repeats a lot of the same animals. Uh, foxes uh, are, are another, one of the big ones. Um, and you can see they're, they're like kind of carved in threes and they're very similar poses to some of what you see on the Gobekli, Pe uh, Gobekli Tepe pillars. Um, they're also able to link this site uh, with another, I guess, a precursor. Um, a lot of the tools are in a similar design to the Kimian culture. So it's very likely that Kim, the Kimian culture had a very large influence on the Stone Hills culture. Um, so just keep that in mind. Now, what was the entirety of the Stone Hills culture made up of descendants from the Kimian? Obviously, we can't say that. Um, I do believe they have recovered some human remains, and they are going to be doing DNA testing on them. So that's very exciting if they can actually get usable DNA to kind of um, examine and um, see what we can learn from there. Um, there have... Uh, they found a number of animal bones, of course. They're all wild, uh, wild cattle, wild sheep, um, deer, uh, antelope, uh, hedgehogs, interestingly enough, uh, wild horses or equids, possibly onagers, maybe, um, maybe something like that. And, of course, rabbits as well are another big thing that they found at that site. So... Yeah, Chakmak Tepe is, right now, it's the earliest example of this, um, of this culture. And it's a very basic, um, but very distinctive uh, site. So it, you can definitely see the similarities to a lot of the drawings, uh, or the carvings, I should say, um, and that might be part of the reason they moved. Um, they had dug in very basic cisterns as well, um, similar to what you'll see at Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. Uh, but it does look like the area maybe got drier a little bit earlier than the places they moved. But it's also possible that they moved into the hills so they could get... Um, access to limestone uh, just have it ha close at hand because uh, I imagine carrying large quantities from the stone hills uh, through kind of the the, the plain uh, of Sinla Urfa and then into the hills around uh, Chukmuk Tepe uh, probably was not very fun um, but say we'll, we'll you know that, that's all just speculation at this point um, now let's move on to, uh, we'll move on to Nawali, or excuse me, Nawali Cori. Um, now this is a site 
that comes up uh, right around 8400 BCE, and it lasts till right around a little bit after 8000, from what I've read. Uh, so this is kind of um, a very a very early um, breakaway point from Gobekli Tepe. Uh, and it's also kind of on its own. Um, it's to the northwest of where Gobekli Tepe is. It's the most northern and I think the most uh, western uh, um, uh site that was founded after, um, I guess, after the um, Kermuk, uh, or excuse me, uh, Chukmuk. Tepe uh, kind of moved into the area. And unfortunately, this site has been lost. Um, it is now underneath uh, the lake that has formed around the Atatürk Dam, uh, which was constructed in the 80s. Um, and I think the excavation of this site, they did like an emergency excavation similar to that uh, location we talked about in Syria. Um, they excavated for about, I think it was just under 10 years. I think it's from like 82 to 92 or 91, something like that. And um, it wasn't a huge site, but they did find a lot of evidence of what has, you know, what may have been the very f- oldest domesticated strain of wheat. So, um, it's possible that this was kind of like an early, maybe a colony or a early group trying to establish another settlement, um, kind of in a similar vein to the other uh, stone pillar or stone hill sites. Um, and they have those same monolithic par- pillars there. Uh, so theirs were built into the stone walls. Um, they would put the, the, the stones around, um, or the, the walls around the stones. They would kind of put them in them. They also had the terrazzo-style cement lime floor. Um, but the site doesn't last very long. It's only, it's only there, again, for a few hundred years, and then it is abandoned. Um, now... That may not have been the case. That may have just been able what they could excavate in time. Um, and it's something that could have maybe been misstated. We don't know. Um, but you do see a difference of... Um, are some developments that are a little bit unique to them that is not necessarily something you see at Gobekli Tepe. Um, they have more human figures kind of designed in um, bowls and things like that. Um, which, again, Gobekli Tepe has some human figures, but they're not very detailed. Uh, they also had what was probably similar to that skull cult or potential skull cult. They found a lot of human skulls and some bodies that were not 100% completed, but I think they found, most of the human remains they found there were skulls. And they also had a lot of um, jewelry designed like 
um, uh, a snake, um, which is something you'll see in a few other of these stone uh, uh, stone um, hills sites. Um, now, we think we know where people went after they left Navali Cori, um, or at least some of the people went. I'm sure some returned to um, the remaining um, stone pillars uh, locations, if not Gobekli Tepe itself, um, because Gobekli Tepe is, they think, the closest of the locations, um, even though Navali is kind of out on its own, it is still fairly close to Gobekli Tepe, at least compared to the other sites. Um, so this may have been a, you know, um, just something that they tried, it didn't work out, and they returned. Um, but there is another site a little bit further uh, to the east, uh, kind of where the Tigris and the Euphrates meet in the um, north of Iraq, or kind of between them there, and that's called uh, Kayano Tepeshi, um, and that is from about 8,600 to about 6,800, um, and they also have very early uh, strains of Emmer and Einkorn, uh, very similar to what they found at Navali Kori. So perhaps that they were a breakaway group uh, from either you know another stone pillar culture or maybe the Navali Kori people after they maybe they were too close to the people in the Stone Hills and there was a disagreement and they had to move uh, a little bit further away. Um, all options I've read, all possible. Um, but uh, Kayono does not have, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any kind of uh, stone pillars or the same kind of religious um, or spiritual iconography that you see at some of the other stone uh, hills sites. So who knows? <laughs> That's just a fancy way of saying we're not quite sure. Um, but yeah, so let us move on to uh, Sefer Tepe. Uh, that is, uh, I think, a very interesting location. Uh, now, Sefer Tepe is, is also on the newer side of these sites that has been studied. Not as uh, recent as uh, Chakmak Tepe. Uh, but uh, I think in the 2000s uh, it was discovered, and it's been excavated steadily every season, like most of these sites are. Um, there are a number of teams that kind of um, operate in the same area every year, uh, and they investigate kind of their own sites, and they invite international people in, and they all kind of collaborate and talk about um, you know, what they've discovered, and then there are people that are, you know, always at the same site every year. Um, but it's all kind of under the, under the umbrella of the um, Istanbul University and the Sanli Urfa Archaeological Museum. They all kind of 
pool resources and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the site I mentioned last week, they do updates on these other sites as well, which is where we're getting some information in this episode. Now, uh, Sefer Tepe is um, kind of contemporaneous with some of the um, later Gobekli Tepe sources. And this site is far to the west. Um, or I'm sorry, excuse me, far to the east. Uh, is the easternmost of the stone pillar um, culture, or stone hills culture, excuse me. Um, and it has some similarities to Gobekli Tepe. They have T-shaped pillars. They have, again, some of the same kind of animal motifs. Um, but they do have some of their own uh, uniqueness as well. Um all of the housing, as far as I'm aware, uh, dates towards um, the late pre-pottery Neolithic period, so it's almost all square. They also, in their walls, have a type of mortar, which is not something that you see at some of these other sites where they're kind of all stuck together and held in place just by weight. Um they have taken samples of this mortar to kind of try to break it down chemically to see what it's made out of. Um, so, you know, we'll see what the results for that are. And that is from, um, that's from the end of last year. So this is new information. Um, we will see what happens, you know, probably within the next year or so. Now, another new kind of discovery um, at Sefer Tepe, and it's a very interesting one, is that you have six uh, pillars kind of parallel to each other in kind of almost a square or a, a shorter rectangle, uh, and they were used to hold up some type of platform, probably made of wood. Um, now, you don't see this in any other Tosh Tepler sites at least as far as I'm aware it's not been mentioned but this same kind of structure or platform has been found in a couple of sites further to the east uh, now this is interesting because um, these are kind of in the basin of the Tigris River um, whereas all the Tos Tepler sites are in the uh, Euphrates River, at least the headwaters. So, um, Sefer Tepe may have had links to sites further to the east, or it may have been a progenitor site to some of those other ones. Um, we will probably learn more as time goes on, because again, all of this is still in the early phases. Every year, more and more is discovered. Apologies for that notification. Um, also, at this site, a large amount of jewelry has been found, which it's been found at the other sites, but um, I was able to actually see pictures of these. Um, they have some very interesting green stones. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think it's jade. I, I didn't see exactly what they're made of, but they come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, there are some larger ones. There are some very small beads um, that were, of course, probably strung together. So... Um, that's another level of continuity or similarity. I also believe they found some snake 
like designs on some of those jewels. So there is some type of snake motif going on for a number of these Tosh Tepler sites. Um, so that's some more similarities. Um, now let's switch over to Karahan Tepe. Now Karahan Tepe is actually believed to be slightly older than Gobekli Tepe. Um, I think right now, I think the most recent dating I've seen puts it to around, I think, 9,400, give or take, as when it first was occupied. Uh, and it has some similarities, again, to Gobekli Tepe. Uh, it has the same kind of stone pillars with that some of that deep boss relief. Um, but this site is much more, uh, or it has a much better, uh, I guess, record or, um, I guess, evidence of people living there year-round. Um, now, this site is a little bit further to the south uh, east of Gobekli Tepe, and it is actually close to a couple of smaller rivers um, that are near, um, I guess, the headwaters of um, of the uh, the Euphrates. So a uh, little bit better water source. So it probably had a slightly larger population, um, or at least had a better time supporting its population than Gobekli Tepe did. Um, but uh, they have some interesting things that do not show up at Gobekli Tepe. Um, at least nothing similar I've seen. They do have more um, human-esque figures uh, kind of carved into the stone. Um, things like, uh, I saw one uh, and read about it, and it's basically a human that appears to be carrying like a leopard on his back. There is a statue that has kind of like a singular body and then two different heads, um, human heads, obviously, and then they have um, realistic features, though they're both different. So there are those that think this might be like a display of duality, maybe between young and old, man and woman, um, what have you. There are also... A number of um, what appear to be possibly masked humans. So they're human heads and shapes, but they're kind of got something over them. So it could be like a depiction of some type of uh, shaman or what have you. Um, and then, of course, you have your standard animal carvings, uh, foxes, uh, spiders, some spiders on humans, oddly enough, like on their chests. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff here at Karahan Tepe. And again, it shows up earlier in the archaeological record. It has more evidence of uh, long-term settlement. It is better suited to settlement. Uh, the question is, you know, why did it kind of break down? Uh, as far as I know, it ends slightly before Gobekli Tepe, at least from what we can tell. 
Um, and I'm not 100% on that, so take that with a little bit of grain of salt. Um, it's hard to get an idea of when these sites are truly, fully abandoned. Um, obviously, the less activity in a location for you know a given period of time, the less trace is left, but that doesn't mean that there's no one there. Um, also, this site is a very good uh, example of uh, backfilling, of locations being buried by people uh, while uh, new buildings are expanded on or kind of uh, built from the ground up. And I had someone ask, how do we know that it was backfilled and it wasn't something like an earthquake or a landslide? Um, typically, landslides, at least this is my understanding from reading the science. So, and again, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a geologist. That's not my background. But I will take them, you know, at their expertise and at their word. Um, typically for landslides or things of that nature, you see all the earth moving in one direction. Whereas the layers here, you have it all kind of coming from multiple ways. So it looks like... Um, these people are pushing in dirt over the top of these places and then like patting it in from multiple angles. Um, because these circular sites or these kind of more temple or uh, ritualistic locations in both Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe um, are actually almost, they're not subterranean, but they are kind of, they're kind of have like a little, almost a walkway dug into the earth around them. And then you'd have to kind of crawl up almost and crawl down to get into them. Uh, so they're almost subterranean, almost. Like you can see the roofs of them from, you know, where you'd be walking or living or working in the area. And you'd have to kind of walk down almost like you're going into a cave or into the underworld, what have you, depending on how far along they are and, you know, I guess what you might consider a cultural or spiritual development or what their ideas were, not necessarily that it's, you know, more developed to think of the underworld as a cave or a separate place or what have you. Um, but yeah, so that's, um, that's kind of the highlights of Karhan Tepe and I'm, I'm kind of shortchanging it here. Um, there's a lot more to go into, but honestly, um, you know, you could go in to a lot of these places and they have their own episode. Um, I'm just trying to kind of highlight what makes them unique and how they're similar to kind of show that there is maybe some type of continuity and connection um, in these places. Um, but, uh, all of these sites, as well as Gobekli Tepe, are mostly abandoned by the end of our time frame. However, um, there is another location that is kind of um, at the end of this culture, or it might be the last bastion of this culture. And it lasts, I think, right up to the end of our timeline. Uh, and that is... Um, Gurku Tepe, or possibly Gurchu, depending on how the Turks would pronounce that. Again, I'm not, 
I'm not 100% on my Turkish, so I do apologize. Um, but uh, Gertrude does mean, uh, from what I can tell, again, rough translation is Georgian. So it's the Georgian hill, um, which might make sense if you think about it, because uh, Gertrude is actually, um, unlike these other sites that are kind of out in the hills and in the wilderness, uh, Gertrude is actually not all that far from San La Urfa. In fact, it's on the outskirts. It, it's it may even be within like the city limits proper. It's kind of like um, almost out in the suburbs. Um, so if you think about it, um, this might be have been the perfect place to go once the weather in the Stone Hills got less humid and more dry. Um, you know, you move down from the hills, you kind of get onto a plain near a stream that kind of runs through the area. And, um, again, this is the site of the city of Edessa. It's in a very important part of, um, the region and the history of the region. So, um, these, um, these, this site is a good site for even a modern city or a more modern city than what you would have at maybe Karahan Tepe or uh, Gobekli Tepe. Uh, and why it's called the Georgian Hill, I don't know. This is an assumption, though, and maybe that's a dangerous thing, but Georgians are from the Caucasus, which is not too far from the Anatolian Peninsula. It's very possible that it could have been home to like a Georgian... Um, colony or like a Georgian um, kind of a merchant association or guild that lived in Edessa and kind of facilitated trade between um, some Georgian uh, polity and uh, either the Byzantines who hold the site or held the site or possibly the county of Edessa or some uh, later Islamic um polity or state in the area and this could have just been a location to um that georgians were welcome to live or allowed to live um and they just made their home over uh the site that is my guess for how this name came about and of course i'll try to research that in the future but that was just me kind of spitballing and theorizing um but uh why Gertrude Tepe is important to our discussion here, and probably the best way to kind of end this episode and series of episodes. Uh, so this site is occupied, again, uh, right up until, I think, maybe a couple hundred years before 6000 BC. And you see stone tools very similar to... Um, what you would find at the other Tosh Chepler sites. Uh, they also have that green stone, which I remembered is called Serpentine, and they even found some axe-like heads that would be made of that. Um, now, I don't think they think those are necessarily the best things to make axe heads from, but it is possible that there was some kind of ceremonial purpose for those axes. Um, you don't have any of the large stone pillars, but you do kind of see a lot of, um, again, smaller animal designs, carvings, uh, things like that. Um, 
and interestingly enough, and probably the most interesting thing that you that they found in terms of possible religious or spiritual development is that there has been a um, well, it's a seated figure. It's a human figure. Um, I don't think there there's much of a way to tell if it's male or female, and that is up for debate right now. But it's kind of similar to some items that you even see far to the west uh, at Catalhuyuk, um, where there is what is possibly like a female um, mother goddess or something along those lines, like this, you know, kind of robust female. And that's not something that we've seen too much of at. Uh, the Tas Tepler sites. There is some slight evidence that there may have been something along those lines towards the end of the period or something developing kind of as agriculture took hold. But um, that's not really something that you see. Um, that's all That's all speculation, basically, is what I'm saying, at least for the Tas Tepler sites. The actual potential mother cult or earth goddess or whatever you want to call it is actually further to the west so it's possible that there is some type of cross-pollination between this last kind of outpost of uh the gertrude um or the the stone hills people and uh peoples further to the uh west whereas maybe at like um sefer tepe you have more relations to people further to the east um but who can say but uh gertrude uh tepe is very very recent excavation i don't think um i think the first excavation was actually last year so they're still kind of digging into this but this is not a huge site um it's actually, again, it's kind of in the outskirts of San La Urfa, which has seen a lot of development in recent years, um, partly because, actually, of the dam in that area further north where Navali Kari is. Um, because of that regulating a lot of the water in the area, San La Urfa can actually support a lot more agriculture. If you look at maps from the area, like um, aerial maps, like, you know, taken... Um, from either airplanes or satellites from like even the like early 90s and now it is much much greener in the area so um, a lot of stuff at um, Gertrude Tepe has actually been damaged or partly dug up from other um, development in the region so um, we may have lost some artifacts but Again, this wasn't a huge location as far as I can tell. Um, but it, it, it would have been within sight of Gobekli Tepe if it was still above ground. Um, you could have seen the location from there. And I believe you could also see Karahan Tepe on a clear day. Um, I could be wrong about that, though. Um, but, yeah, so you, you kind of see... A lot of tools that have been strictly, um, or not strictly, but a lot of tool continuity that has been carried over. Um, you can see it has this, like a stage of progression um, between a lot of these Tosh Tepler sites and 
uh, the end at uh, Gertrude Tepe. But for whatever reason, uh, this is kind of where the, I guess, the, the culture kind of disappears from the archaeological record. Now, we are still not sure why this happened. Uh, it could have been, and I think the most popular theory, is because the weather just got too dry. Um, after the end of the Younger Dryas, where it was much uh, wetter and humid, um, that the area just could not support any type of uh, agriculture, and even wild plants may have been dying off. There just may not have been any wild vegetation, and that probably drove a lot of the wild herds from the area away. So um, that forced the various people living in the region to move to more um, I guess, advent, or you know, more fertile ground, which I do think is the best kind of solution. Um, there's no evidence that any of these sites were destroyed with fire. Uh, it looks like it was deliberate burials, which, you know, we haven't talked about too much, but, um, you know, if they are deliberately burying these sites, knowing that they're not returning or they're not going to be using anymore, this may be the only instance in history where a culture has chosen to uh, end itself, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, but, again, there's a lot to debate about what is or isn't a culture. Um, you know, we'll get into that again in more detail later. But I think what this kind of sites kind of show us, um, I started off talking these episodes about Gobekli Tepe because this is kind of the big discovery for this time frame. And it was very important, and it remains important, and it has its own uniqueness even among all these sites. But these other sites also have their own uniqueness. So it's very important that we do not take all of these sites in on an individual basis. Uh, when studying this region it, and this time frame of this region, uh, it's very important that we compare and contrast the various sites to each other and seeing what's happening at one and maybe not happening at another because it may not have been as unified as it seems. Again, there might be certain tools that one city developed and another didn't or that was useful in one place and not another. Um, there are certain artistic styles that seem to be carried over between sites possibly religious there's again we have the skull cult which is not just in this region but in other places um and there of course there's the burying of your ancestors in you know in your homes that is something that is also kind of shared uh across the region not just in the stone hills so there may have been a you know what was the real difference between say the sites in the levant and the Stone Hills. Uh, tools, mainly. Uh, the material they're using, yes. Um, what they're using to survive, yes. Um, but it's it's hard to kind of just look at one site and come up with all the answers, is what I'm saying. Um, it needs to be something that's kind of investigated from a number of angles at another locations. 
And uh, there's actually, after this part uh, for this region, there is kind of a break of continuity in the area. Um, We don't really see too much large-scale habitation in this region until, um, you know, agriculture has spread from the Fertile Crescent. And you have these cities further to the south and things like that. Um, And by that point, I think um, the region probably suffered very heavily when the weather changed. But once, you know, people and animals left it, it kind of got to a balance, you know, more in line with like the type of uh, um, rainfall and water it was getting. It probably, you know, basically it had time to kind of even out or um, reach a new base level or a, you know, kind of a a level of homos, uh, homo homeostasis, I guess. Um, but of course, that led people to leave. That probably led to the spread of a number of agricultural and um, animal innovations or uh, strains of agriculture and animals that cross-pollinated with people maybe in the Levant or further east or further west. Um, Maybe they kind of helped each other develop their own separate uh, semi-domesticated or domesticated uh, strains. Um, No large-scale warfare at least as far as we can tell, um, which can be hard to see, especially if it's just like a one-off battle. Um, there's not a whole lot of depictions of violence between humans in stone in the stone artwork, so it may not have been something that particularly stood out to them or that they had any kind of, um, you know, say, uh, anything to say about that kind of thing. Um, uh the, but again, that's just guesses. We we honestly don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, culturally, we've already talked about you know maybe shared religious practices. Um, there is again that small sign of maybe an Earth Mother cult or a, a female goddess of some kind uh, developing. Um, the individual carrying the leopard was a fun one for me. Um, I don't know of any, like, maybe it's just a funny story. Um, a dude saves a leopard. Maybe he tried to, you know, (laughs) maybe he tried to, um, tame it. It didn't work. Who knows what that could be. I'm not aware of any leopard gods, like, later in time. Um, I know that there, um, or I should say there are no anthropomorphic leopard gods or gods associated with you know control of leopards um until much later actually uh, i know that there is an egyptian goddess that um that um was leopard skinned uh she was not a le- like she didn't have a leopard head but she had kind of like leopard uh spots I know there's a god in India that is that is an actual leopard or a tiger. I think he kind of changes between, you know, what he needs to be for any given situation. Um, but, obviously, those are not in this region. Uh, 
and they, like again, there are no stories of them carrying a leopard. That is what they share with leopards. Um, now there is another god again that later uh, has been thought to come from Anatolia, um, or possibly from Anatolia. That's still up for debate, and that is Dionysus. Um, he is kind of sometimes depicted as wearing leopard skins and riding leopards. Now, that is the opposite of what is happening in that stone carving. Um, but, um, you know, sometimes stories evolve over time. Uh, and it should be noted that um, uh Dionysus, I think, is said to have come, at least in some stories, he's said to have come from um, the east, or in this case, possibly Turkey. Some say uh, it's more along the, um, uh, the kind of the Palestinian-Syrian coasts, um, possibly Tyre. Um, it's hard to say. Um, but we'll, we'll break down more of that later um when we get to uh later mythology but i think it's an interesting thing that uh perhaps some type of uh, leopard uh god may have been uh a very very old story that got carried forward um but yeah i think that's kind of a good place to stop some wild speculas <laughs> wild speculation that i haven't seen anywhere else but um yeah, so uh, I hope you've enjoyed kind of these episodes. This is a this is a little bit longer than I was planning on making this one, but I got a couple of you know, sidetracked uh, on a couple of things and um, expanded on some stuff I forgot to cover last week. So I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, if you have any feedback or constructive criticism or anything like that, uh, please feel free to email me at waratrevpod at gmail.com or you can send me a message on Twitter. Um, I'm also on YouTube where I've been putting up some of our um, backlog of episodes. I need to do more of that. I'm getting behind again. Uh, I'm going to try to put up a few of those this week. I also uploaded um, a little bit of a playthrough I recorded for um, another kind of bonus episode that I'm planning on doing for um, it's a game called Far Cry Primal got about an hour and a half of that up on youtube now it's uncut it's me talking just rambling uh, similar to this um uh, but it's a video so it's not just um audio but you can reach me there uh if you have a youtube or use youtube uh please you know f subscribe there kind of get the channel numbers up on youtube a little um but yeah i'd like to thank you again for listening and please feel free to reach out however you can. But I'd like to say thank you and have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.